Bill Wilson felt a couple of things. First, he said that, you know, in 1942, our chief responsibility to the newcomers is an adequate presentation of the program. That's one, which you can look up. The second is the sole purpose of an AA group, and this is a pamphlet out in New York, is the teaching and practice of the 12 steps. And then the third, uh, which a lot of people talk about, is in the 12 and 12 and the 9 tradition. It says if any member fails to practice the 12 steps to the best of their ability, they, they sign their own death warrant. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Well, hello, you beautiful souls out there all across the land. That was the voice of Mr. Adam T. that you heard at the beginning of this episode, and you're going to hear so much more from him in just a moment. But first things First, we must get this out of the way. This episode, right here, right now, at this moment, is brought to you by Lee, Todd, Carmel. Is that Carmel or Carmel? Anyway, Carmel, Jennifer, and Randy. You know what Lee, Todd, Carmel, Jennifer, and Randy did? Well, they went to our website, SoberSpeak.com. They clicked on the little yeller donate tab and they made a contribution lee todd carmel jennifer and randy from the bottom of my heart to you thank you for your generosity this episode is going right out to you i john m will be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. As I have spoken about on the past couple of episodes, we have another Sober Speak Live coming up. It's going to be a big shindig, and it's going to be with Miss Samara S. from the Clean Air North Group here in North Texas on March 20th, Friday at 7 p.m., That's where all the cool kids are going to be. So uh, if you want more uh, information like the address and such, it is on our website, www.soberspeak.com, but it will be at the Grace Avenue United Methodist Church in Frisco, Texas. Also, just trying out something a little bit new this time. The event is also on Eventbrite, and you can also find it in our secret Facebook group. So I went to a meeting a little bit uh, earlier today. A uh, very good meeting. And the topic was the only requirement for membership is a desire to speak, excuse me, speak, stop drinking, which uh, the vast majority of you will recognize as the third tradition of Alcoholics Anonymous. It made me think about when I was trying to get sober. And when I say trying, it means I I had realized that I had a problem with uh, alcohol, didn't know what to do about it. I had heard through the grapevine about an organization called Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, didn't know what they were about. Um, And I ended up in the middle of the night about, uh, I was lit, um, and uh, uh, I called into the general service, not the general service, but the, uh, the local intergroup here in the Dallas, Texas area. And a gentleman picked up the phone. We had an extended conversation. Uh, I don't remember much of that conversation, but the only thing that I do remember from that conversation at all 
is he said to me, he said, the only requirement for membership is a desire to quit drinking. I knew I had that. And he got me. Now, I don't know where that gentleman is. Uh, Hopefully I'll meet him at the big meeting in the sky someday. But that always stuck in the back of my brain that this organization is about quitting, quitting drinking. And that's what I want to do. And uh, I thank God that he did not say the only requirement for membership is that you come in and make a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself um, and then uh, make direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others, because that would have scared me off. But like he said, the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. And if you're out there, and perhaps you are looking at AA for the first time, uh, or you're considering going into some meetings, keep that in mind. The only requirement for membership into Alcoholics Anonymous is the desire to quit drinking. All right, now on to Mr. Adam T. Adam T., well, we just had an incredible conversation. Uh, I didn't know where we were going to end up in the conversation. We what do you, what's the word? Meander through, is that the word? Meander? Yeah, like, uh, you know, kind of wandering a lot. We meander through several different topics uh, throughout this conversation that I have with Adam, and I absolutely love it. Adam has been sober since 1998. He started drinking when he was in middle school. I'm sure many of you can relate to that. Uh, he actually, Adam, went to 28 treatment centers for to try to recover from addiction and alcoholism. And as he says, uh, he came out of those treatments centers with a certain language called victimese. <laughs> and we talk about that particular term. Uh, we have an extensive conversation about the, uh, the Oxford group uh, uh, and a little history there. Adam taught me some things that I did not know, and I've been doing this a few 24 hours. We address step one. We talk about singleness of purpose in Alcoholics Anonymous. We talk about uh, acts of providence, as he refers to them. We talk about the doctor's opinion and so much more. So strap on your seatbelts, ladies and gentlemen, and enjoy the ride. Please help me welcome, without further ado, Mr. Adam T. And keep in mind, we will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this episode. Enjoy Adam T. Okay, everybody. So today we are sitting here I say we're sitting here. He's sitting uh, in California. I'm sitting in Texas, but uh, I am talking to Mr. Adam T. So, Mr. Adam T., why don't you go ahead, introduce yourself, and give your sobriety date if you wish, sir. Yeah, my name is Adam T. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a drug addict. My sobriety date is 8-1-1998. 8-1-1998. That's a little bit. And you are in Southern California, am I correct? That is correct. We're going to dive right into your story, Mr. Adam T. So there's a a lot of things that happened between where you are today and before you came into Alcoholics Anonymous and even after you've come into Alcoholics Anonymous. So let me ask this first. When did you first discover or when did you first realize that alcohol was a problem in your life? Junior high school, eighth or ninth grade. I was just... I was loaded every day. So that's where you started drinking, huh? In uh, junior high school? That is it. Do you remember your first drink? I do. Tell me about it. My dad had a 56 convertible Thunderbird. He and my mom were invited to a party. My mom couldn't make it. I went with my dad and people were drinking screwdrivers. And I was like 11 years old. And it was the most magnificent day of my life. I, I was drinking. I was picking up drinks everywhere, drinking them and dancing with all my mom's 35-year-old friends, and I was the life of the... I mean, I chased that feeling the rest of my life. Wow. I was dancing with all these hot 35-year-olds. I'm 11, <laughs> and I puked all over my dad's beautiful convertible. Like This was like a, a classic car, you know, even in 1976. 
you know, and uh, that was it. And he was really nice about it. I vomited all over his car on the way home. And uh, I never forgot that feeling. I don't think I've ever had, you know, it was it, it was women, it was attention. And it was this this amazing feeling of alcohol that that hooked me. It hooked me from it was an out of body kind of thing. Wow. I, I, I can't uh, I've never you know, I've tried to duplicate that ever since. And so that was in junior high. So and then so you made it to alcohol. You made it to Alcoholics Anonymous once again in nineteen. I'm sorry, I didn't write it down. Nineteen ninety what? Oh no no no! I had been coming. I'd be coming in and out of AA for seventeen years before I got sober. So that that's the amazing thing is I got to meet a lot when I came into AA in high school behind a drunk driving. Uh, I was eighteen years old, and at that time. There were all these 60-year-old guys with 30, 40 years sober, and I got to hear some of the most amazing stories. Although I wasn't ready, I, I, I think people were a lot more articulate. They read more. They were more educated. Uh, you know, I mean, before the, the, the you know, this, this thing of media now where people don't read much, there was, people were a lot more articulate. I got to experience a lot of these old-timers as a young man in AA. Uh, but I wasn't ready. I got the information, but it what didn't was your impression my... of them back then? Did you think this is something I could do? No, no, I, I, I because I wasn't ready. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, when they, we have a saying in AA, when you're not ready, they can't say anything right. When you are ready, we can't say anything wrong. And that that transition is something that even in the twelve and twelve, he says that the first step is really an act of providence. It's something that happens to us where we experience powerlessness. The industry has tried to duplicate that, but it is an experience with hopelessness. So Mm -hmm. until that really resonated with me, even those old timers in AA couldn't penetrate through my, you know, my ego. So that was uh, back in your teen years. So tell me, so take me a little back into into your, uh, I guess, uh, uh, early twenties. Uh, what was happening there? And uh, well, it was fun. It was fun. It was fun with problems. Um, I had a lot of trouble as a teenager and as a as a young adult. It was the height of alcoholism. And what kind uh, of trouble? All the kind of trouble that people have: jails, fights, uh, drunk drivings, uh, separation from family. Um, you know, I, I mean, I had a good time with drinking. I, I don't understand people that that, that that say they didn't. But I, I mean, looking at it now, I had to, over a period of years, focus more on the damage and the uh, the downside of alcoholism. If I and I tell new guys, if you keep glorifying and entertaining the good times when you were drinking, you'll go back to it. So I've spent the last 21 years trying to, you know, almost look at the loss. And it wasn't a law. I mean, I didn't lose anything. I traded everything in for booze. I know that. I'm not a victim. I, I traded my education, uh, relationships, all of it to, to have another drink. Speaking of being a victim, I've heard you talk before about being in rehab and yes. speaking a particular language. Can you right. uh, talk about that real quick? <clears throat> Well, yeah, the, the language of victimese is something that most alcoholics, again, going through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, I believe that what happens in the transition of steps four through nine is I see, again, how I make decisions based on self that later left me in a position to be hurt. It's begging for me through that part of the literature to accept responsibility at some point for every single thing in my life. It doesn't mean that um, it was my fault in the sense that a lot of times I came at it blindly, like, like, like this, this idea of being ignorant. Um, There's a point where you have to, to be in denial. I, I had to realize that I had had a decision and I'd taken a path and that, that, that revelation in the inventory process, um, does not allow me to play victim anymore. And that realization, again, has to do with capacity. When, when he talks about the capacity to be honest, it's a very, very important thing because some people don't have the capacity to be honest in this area. And I think that um, over the years, I've also been able to develop compassion for people 
that cannot be honest or cannot see that they they play victim and it's it's um you know i think that's where we lose our tolerance for people it's very very important that i i maintain compassion but what happened in the inventory for me is it revealed to me certain facts about my decision making about the process in which i created my own reality it was someone had suggested to me it's like being on a dance floor and i look at every one of those resentments and i had a part in choosing to dance with every single one of those people Except for my mom and dad, which are my nuclear family, when I look at the other relationships in my life, I did have a responsibility at some point. In fact, that responsibility is also me painting the red flags green. And uh, and when I take other men and other people through the inventory, invariably, like the book uses the word invariably, which means always, I made a decision based on self that left me in a position to be hurt. And over a period of time, I think that I will develop the ability to see that coming. I w- it's the, have you ever heard that, that my life in four or five chapters where I walk down the street, uh, there's a hole, I don't see it, I fall in the hole, that's chapter one. Chapter two, I walk down a street, there's a hole, I see it, I still fall in it, I don't know how to get out. Chapter uh, three, I walk down the street, I see the hole, I walk around the hole. Chapter four, I think it's like, uh, or he walks, he knows how to get out the fourth time. The fifth time he walks down a different street. (laughs) And that's a process. That is such a process that, that even with all the education in the world, a human being has to grow through that. And that is something that even the therapeutic community wants to create for us, but it can't. And I, I work with a lot of young guys and I'll say, you know, if you're in a hot tub with a supermodel, a fifth of whiskey and an eight ball and your dad sends you to rehab, we don't expect you to be happy. <laughs> no, you get that a lot. And the parents don't understand that in the height of the fun that I was having. Right. I mean, you want to talk about sitting in a hot tub with three hot girls and a bunch of money and a fifth of whiskey. You know what I mean? And like dad comes and sends you to rehab. You're like, please, really? I, I and people don't understand that. You think the Alanons get that? Please, no. they don't. <laughs> but see, alcoholism doesn't allow that kind of fun on an ongoing basis. It just doesn't. Eventually, you know, the girls lose their teeth. <laughs> Susie doesn't work. You're in like a horrible hotel. It's like, right? That's lose right. your teeth. It's like, whatever. <laughs> it gets really ugly. I know I'm on tape here. Maybe we can cut this part out, but that's reality. That's reality. Slowly, over a period of time, that magic goes away. And I chase that dream sometimes to the, the gates of insanity and death. And that's what the book talks about. Right. Chased it for yeah. many years. Huh? Well, that's what it says. Life has its moments. And for those moments, a guy like me, a drunk, will give his life to recreate the magic that he once found in alcohol. And unless I can find that sense of comfort and ease through the process of the steps, my experience is I won't stay in AA. I must recreate my life. And, you know, maybe I understand that excitement is not fun. My type of joy now is very different than that. It has to do with connection. It has to do with relationships. It has to do with, um, you know, having purpose, Having true purpose. And I don't believe there's any greater purpose in helping one of God's kids. That That's something that happened to me over a long period of time. To be able to watch somebody come in the day before they die and suddenly have this moment of hope. And from that moment of hope, that little ember that is whatever is left of their life, you see that ember turn into a flame and to a fire. And they 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 become enthusiastic. I was thinking about this yesterday. There's three things we can't give an alcoholic. The gift of desperation, the idea of willingness, which are both related. And the third is enthusiasm. And enthusiasm is something that the Oxford group talked about, um, which means God within, as you know that. Theos meaning God within. Um, the Oxford group had an idea back then if you know a little bit about the history i'm probably not going to get into it unless you want to no 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 i love it so but just for those listening who may not understand what the oxford group is though why don't you talk about that a little bit well there was a lutheran minister uh frank buckman bookman and he um had a he had worked at a 
uh, a school on the East Coast, and he had got this huge resentment over funding at this school. And he ended up going to, I think, Keswick, England, and uh, to a conference. And he, he, he had one of these resentments against the administrators of this, this institution that uh, was, if you've ever had the kind of resentment where you go to sleep thinking about it, you wake up thinking about it, you go to sleep thinking about it, it was taking up space in his head run free. And he had uh, met somebody in, in the UK that had taught him about inventory, taught about praying for people that you have resentment for. And it was the kind of the fundamental components of a four step. Uh, later on, he was in Beijing, China, and he met a person named Sam Shoemaker. Sam Shoemaker and Buckman together ended up uh, forming this group, but they 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 were in Akron, Ohio, and they helped the heir to the Firestone Tire Fortune get sober. And uh, they had had a party for the Oxford group there in Akron, Ohio, and that's how Dr. Bob connected to the Oxford group. At the same time as this was going on, Roland Hazard who was another blue blood heir to allied chemical who had tried to throw money at alcoholism was unable to do so. And he ended up in Switzerland under the care of Carl Jung. Carl Jung had said something to him that is on 27 page 27 in the big book. He says, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I've never seen one single case recover. And, and he says he felt like the gates of hell had slammed shut. And as we all know the story, he says, are there no exceptions? And Young had told him about ideas, attitudes, and emotions that are once the guiding force of these men are suddenly cast to one side and a whole new set of conceptions begins to dominate. And that he said he'd been trying to create in him. It was really the description of what we call a spiritual experience. It laid kind of the, 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 not the pathway, but the idea of what was necessary as psychic change. So um, Hazard comes back. He's involved with with Roland, uh, with um, Ebby Thatcher and the Oxford Group in New York. That's how Bill got that piece. So if you look at it, they both Bob and Bill had both had an experience with this around the same time. And I would say that if any of those events didn't happen, you and I wouldn't be sitting in front of this computer today talking about this. So I think all of that is very very important. But um, one of the ideas, the, the, a lot of people don't realize that in 1939, you can Google this, when the big book was published, the Oxford group had met at the Hollywood Bowl. And believe it or not, 30,000 people went to that meeting. That's how big it was. Really? And so what I, yeah, and you can Google moral rearmament, Hollywood Bowl, 1939, and you will see that what it means is that the, the citizens in our area here had had some form of spiritual need or sickness that they were craving something because they weren't being paid to go there. They, they had shown up for this. And the Yonkshu group had a theory and the theory, as we were talking about earlier, the word enthusiasm means God within the word theos. And they felt that four things blocked a human being from God. And this is what they are. One, a dubious luxury. I will not forego Two, a secret. I will not confess three, a restitution. I will not make and four, someone I will not forgive. And they felt that if those things were removed, the light of God or the light of the spirit for those of agnostic temperance would shine through them and they would be forever changed. And what they called that was a conversion experience. If you look at those four ideas that I just mentioned, they are selfish, dishonest, resentful, and afraid. They come from those four ideas, which originally, as we all know, came from the four absolutes. Absolute honesty, absolute purity, absolute unselfishness, right? So I start to see that these fundamental things came to fruition through these elements. Um, Carl Jung had showed him what was necessary. The Oxford group had provided the path. And Silkworth had shown Bill a piece with the phenomenon of craving that Dr. Bob and a lot of these people didn't have because Bob had understood about the spiritual experience and the path, but he still couldn't get sober. So it's almost like like when Henry Ford and, you know, they had invented the motor vehicle. At the same time, three other people on different continents had come up with the combustion engine at the same time. Man seems to arrive at these conclusions in some kind of connection. It's like you've ever heard of the 101 monkey theory? No. Okay, that's about, if you care to hear about this, it's really off topic, but um, they were trying to train primates to wash their fruit before they ate it because they were dying from parasites. 
And there was, uh, you know, scientists in Africa and in different parts of the world that were doing this at the same time. And they couldn't get these primates to do this. And one day in Africa, one tribe started washing its fruit. And all of a sudden, all over the continent, they all started doing the same thing. And they realized that however weird this is, that there seems to be a connection in humanity between this evolution of the spirit. And I believe that this is something that, that had to happen for people of our type to survive. There was an evolutionary process. We arrived at a conclusion that through spiritual actions and spiritual principles that an alcoholic or an addict or someone that has this type of personality profile could suddenly thrive again in our community because we've been downtrodden. We've been in insane asylums for thousands of years. It's fascinating. Wow. It's fascinating. And, and what's so cool about it is to see that if I follow some very simple spiritual principles, my life gets better. Whether you're an atheist or an agnostic, you cannot deny the results. And, you know, even in We Agnostics, when he says, well, you look at, uh, and, and Bill says it in his story, he says, you look at the evolutionist, the chemist, and the astronomer, which we know is Darwin and, and Galileo, and you, you look at the scientific principles of inertia, centrifugal force, velocity. We know, I'm, I, I come from, a, you know, a group of, of people that understand physics. I, I'm the only one without a doctorate in my family. And, you know, we know there's these immutable physical laws, and the question always comes up, why wouldn't there be spiritual laws? And if you look at it, this, this, this fundamental idea that we have in AA, which stemmed from the Oxford group, is so amazing that if a human being follows these simple ideas, they have a better life. They have order. They have a purpose. And so that's what I believe. That, 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 and those kind of things were really the foundation of AA. Very interesting, and I think it's, it's exciting. Because oh, yeah. I mean, I, I got to tell you, just sitting here listening to you, I'm getting all fired up again. I mean, I've been doing this for a few 24 hours and uh, I absolutely love it. I love the history. And I knew some of that. Uh, I knew a good portion of that with the uh, forming of the Oxford group, but I didn't know the, the pre, the, the, that first part that you went over with the, you know, the Firestone fortune and yeah. uh, the, it's all written. I think it's in pass it on and uh, Ernest Kurtz and uh, some people there. There's some amazing people. And again, I, I always go back to like you ever watch old black and white movies and you see the way that they articulate and communicate. It's like, it's God. It's like, we've lost that. Um, you know, Socrates and Aristotle and all these really wise people, we have to go back and try to figure out what they were saying because, you know, it, it really is. This, this transcends all time and technology. Technology is a great tool, but it shouldn't be something that handicaps us as a society. I agree. Let me take a quick break here. Okay. We okay. will be continuing our conversation. With Adam T. in just a moment, just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the World Wide Web at www.soberspeak.com. You can also find the donate button on your website, which you can use if and only if the spirit moves you to do such. Please keep in mind, this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Self, uh, Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. Adam T. So Mr. Adam, before we started this, you were mentioning, well, this is a first for you, right? Being on a, a podcast, am I correct? Well, I know that I, a lot of the AA talks that we do are duplicated and, you know, people do all kinds of things with them. I mean, you see them on eBay and all kinds of stuff. So, Right. Well, I, uh, let me, let me uh, rephrase. <laughs> this is your first being on a kind of a one-on-one -on -one kind of conversation yeah, is, podcast. Yes. Yeah. Other than what we, we have meetings in LA called uh, Interview with a Drunk. And, you know, you sit on a stage and you get like a hundred people in the room and instead of doing like the typical, what I was like, what happened and what I'm like now, which is somehow a format that's developed around the fellowship, um, they'll interview people and ask them more specific questions as it relates to recovery and hopefully, um, directed towards the transformation that happens through the process of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I, I told you before, I think when someone talks for 45 minutes just about themselves, that they're not much more uh, selfish or less selfish than they were when they started. Bill Wilson felt a couple of things. First, he said that, you know, in 1942, um, 
our chief responsibility to the newcomers an adequate presentation of the program. That's one, which you can look up. The second is uh, the sole purpose of an AA group, and this is a pamphlet out in New York, is the teaching and practice of the 12 steps. And then the third, uh, which a lot of people talk about, is in the 12 and 12 in the ninth tradition. It says if any member fails to practice the 12 steps to the best of their ability, they, they sign their own death warrant. So I, I really try, you know, in this context, um, hopefully to focus on what happens through the process of the 12 steps. Our groups are a lot like that. Um, so, yeah, it is my first time doing this type of interaction. Well, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, and I know the Sober Speak listeners are going to enjoy it. Uh, uh, you know, there's quite a few people out there listen to it. Uh, and the interesting part is, you know, you get to be heard like, okay, so people may not know this about you, but you are what they call a circuit speaker, for lack of a better word. In other words, you you travel around the nation and probably internationally a lot and actually give your talk, right? But a lot of people can't uh, uh, get to those conferences sometimes, especially if they're out in remote areas. And that's where we have a lot of people that are listening in really all four corners of the world. It's like a hundred different countries by the grace of God. And so that is my job here is to find people like you who really know the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, who are committed to Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, and who have done some real good work in AA, uh, and let you kind of come on here and uh, share your story with them. I appreciate that. You're welcome. All right, so let's talk. Let's talk a little bit more about your. Uh, you know, you're you're working through the steps. Uh, like, like for example, when you hear the word step one, you know, we admitted we were alcoholic and came to. Okay. Uh, uh, oh gosh, I just blanked. Uh, we admitted we we're alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. Okay. I mean, what comes to mind for you there, Adam? Well, it's very important. I think that to really understand for someone that's new, what they're saying, that, that what they're really saying is that I got a body that can't process alcohol. More importantly, I have a mind that cannot process reality. I have a body that can't trick and the mind that has to, if you don't think that's a dilemma, uh, the, 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 the idea is the first half of step one, I'm defending my right to drink. The second half of step one, I'm defending my right to play God. And it's very, very important to understand that that actor trying to be the director, as the book says, trying to arrange my career, my relationship, my, my family, if everyone would do as I wished. And what I do in that scenario is I also give God a role in my play. And what I didn't understand is until I can reconcile the difference between the way I think things ought to be and the way they actually are, I live in a type of emotional and spiritual disparity. This is a little more complicated than the way that I'm just, you know, discussing it, but it's very simple. I can't stop once I start and I can't stay stopped on my own. That's the first step. And, uh, very important. What Silkworth says, uh, Silkworth talks about it quite a bit. I, I think again, uh, trying to understand that when he says in the doctor's opinion that some of us are entirely normal in every respect except the effect produced by alcohol, normal, able, friendly people, that is not my type. I am the restless, irritable, discontent type. And what that means is the core nature of my, my personality profile is I, I have a, a restless spirit. Um, we, we, the new word for it is ADD, right? But what it means is I, is I have a restless spirit. Um, I have a fault finding mind. That's the irritability. And I have a discontentment, which means the shine wears off everything right away. I could have a brand new car. I've been saving all year for the car within a couple of weeks. It's the wrong color. You know what I mean? Right. I get a new job. I'm making more money I've ever made in my life. You know, I start doing the math. I'm getting ripped off. Mm -hmm. I, I have a, a discontentment in my spirit. So I have to understand that that core nature, restless, irritable, and discontent, later on in the steps, if I really look at the way the steps are lined up, 10, 11, and 12 remedy those three things. See, 10, the practice helps me with the irritability. 11, the quietening of the mind, the restlessness. And 12, the discontentment. A lot of people in AA, what I, my experience is, is when he says we're bodily and mentally different than our fellows in the third chapter, there's three types there. There's people that are bodily different. They have the phenomenon of craving, but maybe not the spiritual or mental problem. 
to them, they cannot drink no matter what. Once they stop drinking, that solves the problem. They still want to come to AA and hang out because it's a nice place to hang out with other people that don't drink. Then you got people that are mentally different, but not physically. They come from Al-Anon, overeaters, gamblers, sex and love addicts. They love AA because it's the mothership, but they don't have the phenomenon of craving. Then you got type three, bodily and mentally different. That's who I am. So I have both. I understand that as well. Well, that's see that a lot of people don't. And what we try to be all inclusive, but that's the reason we have singleness of purpose because, you know, if a, a guy's at the podium talking about shooting meth in his neck and an alcoholic that just drank wine walks in the back door and he hears, you know, about this drug relation, he's going to think AA is not for me and he'll walk out. And it's not that we don't love drug addicts. It's that there's two talks in AA. There's the talk about what gets us here and the talk about what keeps us here. And I think it's very important to understand that is our responsibility to also talk about what keeps us here. Because sometimes that part about what got us here is all people ever talk about. What happened? What happened? What happened? Right? Or what it was like, what it was like, what it was like, and then one minute of what happened and what it's like now. You know? Right. Because we want to be an attraction. It's more important that we look at our common welfare. And what I've discovered about the traditions is behind each tradition, there's a resentment. And when a person understands the resentment behind each tradition, then the tradition makes sense. Ah, so give me an example of that. What do, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is like when, when we talk about uh, our common welfare comes first, personal recovery depends on AA unity, that my sponsor used to say, well, um, you know, you hear people say the newcomer is the most important person in the room. He says, it's not true. He says, if a newcomer comes into AA and he's disruptive, you will immediately see the first tradition enforced because we'll politely ask him to leave and come back tomorrow. If he disrupts the, the environment of recovery, the atmosphere, and he threatens that it, it, could, it could be as simple as a woman coming in with a baby screaming and all of a sudden no one can hear the message. Now, now what's more important now? I, now the woman with the baby screaming is going to think, Oh, you guys got to help me and all this stuff. But at the same time, no one can hear the message out of respect. Maybe someone can walk out and talk to her about AA outside or until the baby stops screaming, then bring her back in. But these are important issues. They really do become important. You know, uh, the, the second tradition about, you know, our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. We talk about a democratic process. We talk about rotating leadership. If one guy's the secretary every year for 15 years because he feels like he's the only one qualified, I understand that. But hopefully a healthy AA group is going to continue to attract people and there will be rotating leadership. So all the way through the tradition, and I don't want to go through all of them right now. It's too detailed. It'll take forever. But the traditions relate to the alcoholic who still suffers. They relate to God as he expresses himself in our group conscience. They relate to other groups in the fourth tradition. And then they also relate to the world. So if you really look at it, like the steps one through three is God, four through seven is self eight and nine is others, 10 is self, 11 is God, 12 is others. The traditions have a type of relationship with those entities as well. And it's very important to understand there's, a, there's 36 principles here and they are very much uh, spiritual principles. You can take the group out of the traditions and push the, put the survival of mankind. Our common welfare comes first. Our survival as a race depends on our unity. For our survival as a race, we have a, a, a loving God. It's go and go through it. That was very interesting. You can see, you can plug in a lot of variables into the group, including the family and a relationship as a couple. And suddenly it all starts to make sense that, you know, you have to tweak a few of the ideas, but it's like a corporate charter. It keeps Alcoholics Anonymous thriving and healthy, and it protects us from, as we say, the internal and external forces that could destroy us. Talk about the only requirement. You kind of touched on it a little bit a moment ago with the singleness of purpose. And, you know, it could be a little bit controversial, but, and, you know, we all have our opinions and kind of see it in a different way. But talk to me a little bit about the um, the third tradition. Uh, in other words, uh, the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's, I think that again is something that we, we have to understand. My experience now is that what's happening to Alcoholics Anonymous is the same thing that happened to Cocaine Anonymous. In the, in the eighties, Cocaine Anonymous was a massive 12 step program, but 
by the name Cocaine Anonymous. It is a drug-driven program. I had some friends down in Bogota, Colombia, and they were they were saying, "Oh, we don't we don't sell to the U.S. anymore. We sell to Australia and to the U.K. And if you go to Australia, the U.K., Cocaine Anonymous is booming right now. It's booming. I mean, they're like meetings are like four hundred people because there's people running around with big bags of crack on the street, and all that's been replaced with meth." in the United States. So, so what happens with Alcoholics Anonymous is because it's a, we know, show me one person under 30 that just did alcohol. Right. So what happens with AA now is, is the numbers are starting to diminish because people are an alcoholic and an addict there. It's not, it's not just alcoholism anymore. And that therefore they, they start to think that it doesn't apply to them, that it's not as specific to the drug they were using, which is short-sighted because the true problem is a spiritual malady. It's a maladjustment and a distortion in my relationship with God, self, and others. But that's a little deep for a guy that's brand new. So I think that Alcoholics Anonymous, when we talk about singleness of purpose, which is the, the, the question, um, People don't identify as just alcoholic anymore. And I think that that is something that I don't know if AA is going to adjust itself for that. I don't think it will. I think that Alcoholics Anonymous is more specific to alcoholism. We have a lot of speakers that get up and say, you know, I've never drank in my life, but I have alcoholism. And then they proceed to talk for 25 minutes. And <laughs> a lot of times you'll see people walk out of AA that, 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 that are just alcoholic and they don't identify with that. So again, I think we have to be very careful to keep Alcoholics Anonymous alive. It's not that we don't like drug addicts. In fact, I'm a drug addict too. I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic. I love doing, you know, Coke, meth, opiates, and drinking. I mean, but I understand, you know, like I said, when you asked me about my first drink, that was the most significant event in my life. I was a straight A student. I was a good kid. As soon as I touched alcohol, I was just like, there was a fork in the road. I didn't talk to my parents for 20 years after that. I chased alcohol. So yeah, I just, I'm an alcoholic too, you know? Didn't you go through many treatments? Do I, I went remember through that? treatment 28 times. Yeah. 20? <laughs> 28 times. 20. And so, I didn't hear the message. I, I don't know if I wasn't receptive to the message. I don't think I was, but I, I also think that had I had the uh, people around me that really understood Alcoholics Anonymous, because when I was introduced to a process of going through the book and turning statements into questions, I saw myself in the literature. No one had ever done for me what uh, my sponsor and the group that I was involved in at the time did. I think that but I, I think that, again, desperation is like the catalyst and the, 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 the thing that has to be there. It is from that that people become teachable. So I, I don't know if, if – I'd heard Chapter 5 10,000 times probably. You know, I mean, I'd sat in meetings off and on for 20, 17 years before I got sober. So I'd heard it, but somehow I didn't internalize it until that act of providence where I was absolutely convinced. The disease killed me every day. It wouldn't bury me. And then I became teachable. A lot of people die before they get to that place. Right. So, and I'm sure you've been asked this question before. I've been asked it many times. So what was that final turning point? Are you able to put your finger on it? No, absolutely not. It's an act of providence. And that's what it means. There's an intervention. There's something that happens uh, to us, really, where even in the 12 and 12, in the third tradition, it says the first step's first two steps require no action, only reflection. So that is, again, I've got all the writing and all the, you know, the write about your drinking history. I, do you have any treatment centers and how many relapse prevention class I'd sat in? I just couldn't wait to go out and have a couple drinks. It didn't work until I was ready. I'm going to defend my right to drink until I'm completely and absolutely exhausted. And that's where the therapeutic community comes up short. We haven't come up with that magic bullet. You know what I mean? I do. It, 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 no, but it's very, very difficult. Like you're going to take away my desire to do the one thing that I absolutely love more than anything in the world. Somehow you're going to convince me that that's not fun when it's such a visceral, amazing experience. Until that stops creating that kind of amazing like psychic change that alcohol creates in me, very, very little hope in my recovery. Silkworth wrote it in the doctor's opinion. Uh, the therapeutic community, they're trying to tell me that I don't like what I like. Not going to work. Right. 
So do you have, I, I know I come across this on a pretty consistent basis. You have family members and relatives and boyfriends and girlfriends, whatever the case may be, who call you up and they say, you know, he or she just can't get sober. What should I do? What do you usually say to those people? And especially because the act of providence needs to be involved here. I don't see, I, I endorse treatment in that treatment probably saved my life. Treatment slowed me down. Treatment gave me an opportunity to possibly hear the message. In fact, Bill Wilson had gone through treatment three times. So I see treatment as part of the process, but I don't see treatment in and of itself solving the problem. And I believe the problem is, again, me defending my right to drink. But later, the solution is where I, what I found in Alcoholics Anonymous. I found that going to meetings, working steps, and helping others and doing it almost like a, uh, a ritual brought about a change. And I think sometimes that if treatment is aligned with this ritual, where they can get you to meetings, they can help you work steps, they can come. I, and I've seen treatment centers where they literally assign you someone to go back to your hometown and knock on doors and make amends. I've seen treatment centers that take the type of care with individuals with sometimes their, their uh, past clients will come back through sponsorship like Bill Wilson did. Um, then it can work. But it, it, unfortunately, the treatment industry has become slightly corrupt like anything. Money and power corrupt, total money and power corrupt totally. I, and they know it. They know it. You know, I, I don't want to talk about the, the SAMHSA website, which is the federal government's arm of treatment. But, you know, their statistics are daunting. I think I read something like 2.1 million people had gone through treatment in any given year. Less than 50,000 had made it a year on their own. And that's why Dr. Silkworth says, with all our synthetic knowledge, with all our ultra-modern standards, we, we can't even scratch the surface. Yet he saw what he's... When Bill Wilson went through treatment on his third trip through treatment, if you really understand the doctor's opinion, he gets this idea. He's depressed. He's lost money in the market. He looks at all the broken relationships. And he gets an idea. Maybe if he goes back into this treatment center and talks to some of the patients, he'll feel better. That's all it was. And he calls Dr. Silkworth, and, and in the book it says, with some misgivings. So Silkworth basically said, you want to do what, Bill? Like he'd never heard it. He's going to have one of the patients come back and talk to the other patients with no credentials. But he said he allowed Bill to do it. And what happened from 1935 to 1939, he said, was so amazing that he endorsed the book. And if you look at the first endorsement in the doctor's opinion, where it says you could absolutely rely on anything these men say about themselves, that endorsement was given to Bill so he could go to any hospital and have the credibility and the credentials of a treatment center director to talk to patients. And that was the beginning. He said he was absolutely amazed at what he saw. And I believe that that is part of the process of recovery that treatment can do. It could do it. But a lot of the people I see, they should, they should put sober living and treatment into creative financing in business school because a lot of the people that are doing it know nothing about recovery. It's just a way for them to pay their mortgage. They put a bunch of guys in the house. They buy a little van. They take them to meetings. But they don't have the natural ability or concern or care or love to help people. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's right. I, I, I mind my own business. I know what I do. When, I, when guys come to me out of treatment, if they want help, I would say, meet me at a meeting an hour before, once a week, I'll take you through the book. I'll teach you how to help others. I'll show you how to get free of this. So that's my, that's, I, I just need to keep my singleness of purpose right there and mind my own business. Adam, time has flown. I absolutely enjoyed this uh, so much. Will you do me a favor and come I back will. some other time? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> you let me know. Okay. Well, I would absolutely love it if you do. Uh, and we'll figure out what to talk about next time. Uh, you know, I didn't even know what we were going to talk about on this one. And I, yeah, I like it's organic. It. I understand that. Right. Um, but it, it really is, I think, the... the they say there's two dates in a human being's life, the day they're born and the day they find out why. And I never knew that that why would be taking a guy through the steps and suddenly he becomes a great son or a great dad. One goes to law school. The, the thing about watching people grow and, 
and become excited, to become amazed about their life and to have purpose is, is, is amazing. It's so amazing. I've got to do, you know, talks here and there. And every once in a while you see somebody that's had that change and it, it's like, they become on fire about this thing. And, uh, it's pretty wild. And I, I keep seeing that over and over, especially going to conferences around the country and seeing people I see AA at its best. It's wonderful. Maybe this will end up as a little course in uh, junior high school to mm-hmm. help kids to be connected. And to be transparent and to have self-acceptance because there's so many fundamental tools within this program that cannot do anything but help a human being to become more effective and to grow. God bless you, my friend. Uh, I always end it with uh, page 164 from the big book. I'll read this real quick. And um, let me get to it. It is abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us, as like me and Mr. Adam, as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Mr. Adam, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Mr. Adam, for your time. It was most enjoyable. And uh, as you heard us discussing on the end of that there, Adam and I are going to schedule some uh, additional recording time in the future, get back together and bring you some more from Mr. Adam T. If you want to get in touch with Adam or you want to get a message to any of the other speakers, send me an email to john, J-O-H-N, at silverspeak.com, and I will more than I will be more than happy to deliver that message to them, um, or if you have any other feedback, just in general. All right, so now on to a little bit of uh, listener feedback. Oh, oh, before I go there, if you are not, in the super secret Facebook group, and you'd like to be, send me your email associated with your Facebook account to John J O H N at silverspeak.com. And if you want to follow us on the Instagram, La Instagram, Lay Instagram, that'd be kind of a French version, wouldn't it? Lay Instagram. Nonetheless, if you want to follow us on Lay Instagram, it will, it, we're at, um, at, so to speak, all one word. Now, on to what you've all been waiting for. I know you have been on the edge of your seat just waiting for this. Don't try to fool me. We are going to share some listener feedback. When I say listener feedback, these are the sober speak listeners. You, you guys, sending them feedback. So much I get, and I love it, I love it, I love it. All right, here we go. The first one, well, this is not really feedback. <laughs> Now with all that big, uh, <laughs> that big uh, uh, to do there, uh, build up, uh, and it's not really feedback. This is something that was posted in the super secret Facebook group, and I don't. And, and so here's what happens: every once in a while, I kind of, well, you on a weekly basis, really, not every once in a while, I will scroll through the secret Facebook group. And I'll just pick out something, usually something at random, not something at random, something that kind of uh, uh, spoke to me, if you will. I will pick out something from uh, all the posts in there, and I'll read it uh, on listener feedback. And this one comes from Steve in the Facebook group. And Steve is what I call our daily reflections guy. Uh, I'm sure some of you have heard me talk about him before. He puts something in this super secret Facebook group just about every day. Uh, it's usually a quote. In fact, I think it's always a quote from the big book. And then he follows it up with a little commentary, much like the Daily Reflections AA literature, if you are familiar with that. Anyway, he wrote in here. This is a quote from page 153 of the big book. It may seem incredible that these men are to become happy, respectful, and you, excuse me, respected and useful once more. How can they rise out of such misery, bad repute, and hopelessness? The practical answer is that since these things have happened among us, they can happen with you. Page 153 from the big book. 
That's an incredible passage. And Steve follows it up and he says, how long will you limit your success and abundance in life? How long will you remain in dissatisfaction? Take the proverbial leap of faith. Work our steps with all you have. One day, then another. One step, then another. Happy Friday! Exclamation point. Thank you for posting that, Steve. I appreciate it. Philip writes in. Philip from Sweden. That's a uh, Sweden for you people who aren't from Sweden and you would not know what that means. Anyway, hi, John. Sorry in advance for my broken English. I have found myself in a hard situation for a time I have been thinking, and I have learned that I should not try to solve my problems by thinking. Yep, there's an old joke, uh, Philip, and it says uh, three words you never want to hear an alcoholic say is, I've been thinking. Anyway, I am going to turn to God, my sponsor, and other AA members of AA that I trust. My home group is sick. It's toxic and dysfunctional. This hurts. Uh, it used to be the place where I wanted to be the most, a place where I felt safe. It's where I started my recovery. There is two or three people that go against the traditions, mostly traditions one and two. I am the only one taking action against it. The others in the group are afraid. I'm the GSR of the group. I feel powerless. A part of me wants to walk away from the group, go to another group, and that's just 30 minutes away. I visit them sometimes. They are all about love, fellowship, service, and recovery. I like that. The program of AA works for me. I'm responsible for sharing about my experience to others, especially newcomers. Sometimes there is newcomers in my home group. I want to be there for them. I got a sponsee in the group. Good for you, Philip. I don't know what to do. I feel really bad going to meetings and, excuse me, I lost my place, uh, going to meetings and being around those toxic people, it hurts. Am I following my ego if I walk away from the home group because I want a nice group? Or is it good taking a stand and saying no? Thank you, Philip. Well, Philip, listen, I don't want to give you advice, so to speak, but I can tell you I've uh, changed home groups several times uh, throughout my sobriety. And usually in my gut, I just tried to follow what I call the light. Uh, I tried to look toward what God would have me do and then follow that path. Uh, if anybody's out there and you want to write in and respond to Philip with your experience, strength, and hope, feel free to do that. And Philip, I'm going to say also, I'll, I'll write you back after this and say, can you post that in the uh, Soberspeak uh, Facebook group? I'm sure you'll get some uh, feedback. He says, thank you, Philip. By the way, he says, P.S. My dad's name is Bjorn. Ha ha. <laughs> and the reason he's writing that is because when I first started this podcast, I I got several different letters from Sweden. And when the people from Sweden wrote to me, uh, it seemed like every one of them was a male and every one of them was named Bjorn. And, you know, I say, I guess it's like John in America. In fact, I would think Bjorn may be the sweetest version of John. I'm not sure. Uh, once again, I should really look these things up before I get on the mic. Huh? Nonetheless, um, so, so he, so he's saying that his, his dad's name is Bjorn and, uh, it fits the, uh, uh, stereotype for lack of a better word. Scarlett writes in again this week with an update and you may have heard her last week and I did all my stuff about Scarlett. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. And Scarlett, she just wrote a beautiful letter and then she, and then she followed up with an, an update. And she said, John, I did make it today to get my two-month chip, by the way. I truly believe if I'd have picked up the bottle on the 21st, I would have drank myself to death by now. Because I doubt very much I'd have stopped at that one half gallon of Jack. 
She's talking about Jack Daniels, for those of you who may be in other countries. And while I had trouble finding hard drugs while laid up in bed, popping benzos and opiates when I moved back here, I found out a chosen family member is dealing and using after years of sobriety. Instead of feeling happy that I could finally get the quote, good, unquote, stuff to finish the job, I'm instead in a place to reach out to share my experience, strength, and hope with him. God is good. Thank you again for all you do, John. I've shared your podcast with several friends. You are my meeting between meetings. I'm thankful to have found your podcast and the amazing community that has sprung forth from the work you do. May the Lord watch over you and protect you, Scarlett. Scarlett, you are a beautiful writer. Thank you so much for writing in. God bless you, and may God bless you and keep you until then, as I've seen you said in another uh, uh, email that you sent. Todd writes in, and Todd says, this is a little bit of a longer one, but it's a, a lot of good stuff in here. He believes, or excuse me, not he. Todd says, I believe laughter is one of the best medicines. I am 56, and I was born in January of 1964. I've got a few boo-boos in my past. <laughs> boo-boos. <laughs> I got a few boo-boos myself, Mr. Todd, because I think that I think God's been looking out for me a little extra special until I could get to some neutral ground to see his grace. Both of my folks were bad alcoholics. They both took their lives while they were intoxicated. Oh my goodness, Todd. My goodness. I lost my dad before I could even remember him. My mom loved us, but she beat us pretty bad also. I lost my mom when I was 22. You shared about your anxieties, fears, and resentments, and I identified with that, John. Thanks for being honest. The truth does set me free. Honest is another, honesty is another wonderful medicine. Alcohol had always been my cure. My biggest struggle has been anxiety, anxiety attacks. The more I see God's got me and that I've been in his hands the whole time, my anxiety is becoming manageable. I can relate to that, Todd. Um, my anxiety has not disappeared by any means, but it is more manageable. I have to laugh at myself because now I can see that the worst thing I could have done to handle my fears and anxiety was self-reliance. The more I put myself in God's hands, step three, the more, I be, uh, the more I'm being healed in front of my own eyes. This is not a sob story, John. I love my life very much, and I am also very guilty of creating my own wreckage also, sir. Yes, <laughs> I get that. But I might be the biggest dork on the whole planet, smiley face. I love life and this planet, and so much every day is like Christmas to me. <laughs> I am chopping at the bit to get it started like a kid in a candy store. Good for you, Todd. Even going to work. Told you I was a dork, smiley face. I went to my first meeting in 82. I had a nudge from a judge. In 84, I went to the one, I went to one on my own. I had a horrible anxiety attack and I didn't go back for two years, even though I wanted to. Since the early 80s, I've been probably sober about one third of that time, in and out of AA the entire time, enough to stay alive at the right moments. God's grace. Being human, being human is crazy complicated. Man, you're not kidding. Emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritual. I'm, being, I'm behind the ball on sorting it all out. But I'm at peace when I put myself in God's hands, and I'm confident everything is going to be okay. Oh, yeah. I like anything outdoors, kind people, all types of music, food, golf, and God. P.S. I really stink at golf. <laughs> Laugh out loud. I hope to meet you one day, John. John, you are a kind soul, sir. Oh, you're very... You're very kind to say that, and I hope our paths do cross. Never doubt for one moment you are heaven sent. 
Well, I appreciate that, but if God wasn't using me, he'd be using somebody else, Mr. Todd. Anyway, he says, we all just get a little mixed up and lost along the way sometime. I keep my eye on the prize now. God's grace and God's glory. See ya, Todd. Thank you, Todd, for writing in. Uh, that was a wonderful letter, and uh, uh, thanks for sharing your experience, strength, and hope. And I know there's going to be somebody out there who can benefit from hearing that. Jimmy P writes in, Jimmy P, and he says, my name is Jimmy P. I live in Palestine, Texas, USA. I am a real recovering alcoholic with a sobriety date of May 16th, 1988. Well, you've been at this a while, Mr. Jimmy. I have a friend that posted something on her Facebook page that contained a link to Sober Speak. I really haven't had time to listen to a speaker yet, but I plan to check it out soon. I facilitate NA and AA meetings in a maximum security prison near my home, and I'm always interested in finding things to share with the guys, Jimmy P. Well, my goodness, if you are out there and you're listening to this and you're incarcerated, uh, God bless you, and I am so glad you're listening to this. And Jimmy P., thank you for carrying on the message and your dedication to our community. And I'm sorry that you have not yet got to listen to an episode of Sober Speak. Jimmy, here's the deal. You, my friend, are just going to need to take a couple of weeks off, right, of whatever you're doing, and just sit back and crank up the 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 podcast and just listen to about 110 of these 120 of these back to back to back it will be well worth it sir <laughs> anyway jimmy p thanks for writing in and finally last but not least miss alicia miss alicia excuse me ah oh, that's, that's a tongue twister alicia d writes in and she says, hi, John, I am Alicia D. I am a third generation alcoholic, mother of three grown daughters and two granddaughters. My sobriety date is December 8th of 2019. I did a search on Apple Podcasts under AA and I found your podcast. Well, I'm glad we found each other, Miss Alicia. They are very inspirational. Keep up the good work. I tell you what, I'll keep up the good work if you keep listening. How's that? I especially enjoyed hearing Brenda J. Uh, live at so the live event for Sober Speak. Thanks for all you do, Alicia D. All right, everybody, that wraps it up. Another episode of Sober Speak in the books. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I think I'm going to be back next week. One week at a time, my friends. Love y'all. Adios.